0: Diedrich was born on February the 4th, 1906, born to ordinary parents in an obscure town in Poland. Diedrich was raised in the church and grew to desire to teach God's Word. He would go on to teach the faculty at the University of Berlin and be an integral part of organizing what was called the Confessing Church a group of lutheran and other protestant churches throughout germany and the surrounding regions that were against the occupying nazi forces ultimately bonhoeffer would be put to death by nazi germany for resisting hitler and his evil empire bonhoeffer warns us in the cost in his book titled the cost of discipleship about what he titled as cheap grace. God's grace in Christ is free, but it is never cheap, he writes. Grace is costly, for God gave up His own Son for our sins. Therefore, those who follow after Christ are called to a life of costly discipleship. Of course, Dietrich knew that so well in his own life, having suffered at the hands of evil because of following Christ. Chief Grace says that we can accept Christ as our Savior, but not as our Lord. Chief Grace says that we can have the benefit of the forgiveness of sins without doing what Jesus says. Chief Grace says that God has promise to prosper us, and that we will never suffer as Christians. Cheap grace is no grace at all. It's not gospel grace. It's not the grace that the Lord Jesus taught us to receive by faith in Him. As one author puts it, radical discipleship means we testify that our loyalty is to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We pledge ourselves to follow Him, to deny ourselves, and to walk the road of Calvary daily. None of us live perfectly as disciples, and we all fall short in many ways, but when we sin and stumble, we get up, confess our sins, and get on the road to discipleship again Jesus has been teaching his disciples how to follow him last week as uh, Luke recorded for us Jesus sent out his disciples to do extraordinary ministry and Jesus displayed his power and glory and grace through the feeding of the 5000 for which the disciples got to have hands-on experience of what it would look like to be a church that served the needs of the people by giving them the living bread of the Word of God. And we concluded last week with Peter's wonderful confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. That He is God's anointed One. His chosen One. He is the true King of Israel who has come to fully and finally deliver God's people from sin and captivity. And as Peter confesses this wonderful truth about Jesus, and confesses his trust in Christ, and his confession that He is the Christ, we come to Jesus' answer or response. We come to a passage where Jesus clarifies what kind of Christ He has come to be. You see, when the people of Israel confessed that Jesus was the Christ, or when they longed for the Christ to come, Jesus would often tell them to be silent and to tell no one about His identity. Because He didn't want to get everybody in a frenzy. You see, the whole country was confused about who the Christ would be. They thought that when the Christ came, He would finally come and Get rid of the Roman occupiers. And that they would set up Israel again as a great and powerful nation that they had experienced under King David. But what we find in the coming of Christ isn't a victorious king, but a suffering Savior. One who, in the eyes of the world, looks pathetic, looks pitiful, looks weak. But as we'll see this morning, it was in the midst of his weakness that his glory would be revealed. Well, friend, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning. And we're going to take up verses 21 through 50 today in our study of Luke's gospel. As a reminder, as you turn there... Luke is writing this to Theophilus to give him an orderly account of the things that he has come to know and believe. And so, therefore, if you're a Christian this morning, this is a particular word to you to encourage your faith and trust in Christ. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 21. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days any anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. And as I begged your disciples to cast it out, they could not. Jesus answered, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But when they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying, an argument arose among them of which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against us is for you." Well, this reading here is one unit. It concludes Luke's section. In fact, in verse 51, we will find Luke's narrative taken up to Jerusalem. Jesus is told in verse 51 to turn His eyes towards Jerusalem and set His heart there. In other words, this is concluding Jesus' teaching and instructions to His disciples and rounding out the section on His identity. And so the main idea we find before us this morning is that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God, who came into the world to die the death we deserved, and to equip us to carry on His mission until He returns in power and glory to culminate His eternal kingdom. And so this morning, our hope is to find from this uh, Jesus' identity and destiny but also to see what it means to follow after Jesus. Central to this entire passage is what it means to follow after Christ, this one who came to die the death we deserved. And so we see in our passage this morning three aspects of following Christ. Number one, we see the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And it it is a costly discipleship. Secondly, we'll see in verses 28 through 36 the glory of following Christ, the glory of following after Christ. We'll see the cost of following Christ and the glory of following Christ. And thirdly, as Jesus descends from the mountain, we see the failure of following Christ. We see a a series of missteps or failures of the disciples and the people of God. Well, first, in verses 21 through 27, we see the cost of following Jesus. Look with me there again. Jesus tells His disciples not to say a word about this truth that He is the Christ. Why? Well, as I have said earlier, because He didn't want them to have a misunderstanding of the Christ He has come to be. And we find right here in verse 21, the Christ that He has come to be. Verses 21 and 22 says this, The Son of Man, again this is Jesus' favorite title for Himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the, chief, the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and the third day be raised. We see the cost of following Jesus costs God His own Son. Jesus here reveals to us that He he has come not to live as a moral example for us, but to die the death you and I deserve. Jesus is not dying unwillingly. This is not some form of divine child abuse. But rather we see the Son of Man is willingly going to the cross. Jesus here, we are told in verse 51, is that He sets His face to go to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits Him when He arrives in Jerusalem. Only death awaits the Savior. He understands that He has come to do the Father's will. Look with me there at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer. He must do these things. This is not an optional assignment. This is a divine assignment. He has been sent by the Father to accomplish The Father's will for humanity. We must understand that Jesus came willingly to do His Father's will. We also see in this statement of the must, of the exclusivity of Christ. That this is the only way that God will forgive man their sin. That we cannot earn God's forgiveness or grace. We can do nothing to earn God's love, but rather... It is solely God's plan to execute his son in our place. This is why we hold to the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that Christ died in our place as a perfect sacrifice for our iniquity and sin. Oh, this is what we heard prophesied through Isaiah in Isaiah 53. That He bore our griefs and He carried our sorrows. And friend, as we consider this morning these words, we ought to be encouraged this morning at the costliness of our redemption. It cost God His only Son. It cost Jesus. It is a costly discipleship. We ought to approach following Christ with such seriousness. With an attitude of reverence, of knowing that we do not deserve anything that we have received, but have received it solely by grace alone, in Christ alone. We see though in this a glimpse of the picture of redemption. First suffering, and then glory. Notice how Jesus ends there in verse 22. He says, and then on the third day, be raised. His death was not a hopeless death. His death was not a pointless death. His death accomplished everything it set out to do. When Jesus declared on the cross that it is finished, His resurrection from the dead vindicated those words. That it truly was finished finished. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go so far as to say in Romans chapter 4 that that his resurrection was for our justification. That just as he died the death we deserve, he was raised that we too might live with him forever. But we see a bit of the blueprint of God's plan of suffering and then glory. We see that first, in the Christian life is suffering, and sorrow, and brokenness, and pain. And then comes the promise of glory. We are not promised glory now, but we are only promised pain, and suffering, and sorrow. This is what Jesus goes on to say then in verses 23 and 20 through 27. We see the cost of self. That if we are to follow after Christ, that not only does it cost the Son, we see that it costs us our own self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. When a Roman prisoner was set for execution, he was to carry the, the cross. He was to carry a piece of the cross. It was the understanding that once that cross was put upon his shoulder, that the destination was only to end in his death. You don't pick up a cross to put it back down again. When one picks it up, it results in only death. And Luke here adds a unique word that is found only in Luke's Gospel, the word Daily. In other words, the call to self-denial is a daily exercise, an ongoing activity. He wants us to understand that it's not a momentary, a one and done deal. So often we think that following after Jesus is simply praying some prayer or walking some aisle. A friend, following Christ is a daily exercise and frankly some days are harder than others. If you find it easy to follow Christ, I wonder whether or not you're following Him at all. It is an arduous and difficult. It is hard to kill yourself. It is very difficult because we live for self. We love ourselves. We love our own sin. Tim Keller writes in his book The King's Cross, self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries such as chocolates, cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails, although it might include these. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed rights to go our own way. To deny oneself, he says, is to turn from idolatry of self-centeredness. And friend, we have to understand that our very nature is self-oriented. And so to follow after Christ is a completely radical turn in our life. And it is a daily call to die. But we also see in verses 24 and 25 the cost of life. Jesus says, forever who would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or loses or forfeits himself? Following after Christ is a losing, but it is also a gaining. It is a wonderful picture our Savior paints for us of the treasures of this world. If you seek after life, you will die, he says. And what he means is life in this world. If you seek after the things of this world, you will be left with nothing. But if you will die to this world, if you will die to the things of this world, and you will find your life in Me, oh, you will live forevermore. And the treasures that you will gain will pale in comparison to the treasures that this world offered you. It is quite foolish in our own eyes to see the glimmers and the glamour of this world compared to the treasures of an eternal kingdom that has no end. Of course, in a number of chapters, in Luke chapter 12, we will be told of a story of a rich young ruler who saved up all of his life. He saved everything he had. And then what happened? He couldn't enjoy it. He had saved up for retirement, that he could have his best years in retirement. But what, what did he find but death? It is a reminder that we can amass the greatest treasures, but they don't go with us. We see also here the cost of reputation. That following Christ will also cost us our reputation. No doubt many of you have experienced this in your own life. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. Shame and suffering comes with following Christ. We ought not to find it strange when people around us laugh and ridicule us because we're following after Jesus. You're really doing that? It's such a beautiful day. Isn't there other things you could give your time to than going to church? I mean, people still do that? You mean you, you, you read your Bible and you, you give your time to helping others read the Bible. What, what is this prayer that you pray all the time? Why do you waste your time doing such foolish religious activity? Don't you know that it amounts to nothing? Do you really believe that there's a God? Hasn't science proven... That there is no supernatural. You are truly silly. Even this week, many of you will be reminded of the shame of following after Christ. As you go to families' houses and who live in utter rebellion against God. But yet, you're faithful to Him and they ridicule you and laugh at you. It is a reminder that this world is filled with suffering, but I would remind you, brothers and sisters, remember, suffering, then glory, a cross, then a crown. This is what we long for. This is God's plan. This is His blueprint that He has written on creation, first suffering, then glory. And that is exactly what we find in our passage here. Jesus here promises His disciples that there were some there that day that would see His glory before death. I, I think this is applied, or, or rather rather fulfilled, in, in the transfiguration. That is, verse 27, For truly I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I don't think this refers to some future time uh, in the distance, or to something rather at the end of time, but rather right here. This is why in every gospel account, the transfiguration follows that statement. Verse 28, now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his face was transformed before him. And the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. The glory that these disciples witnessed, the glory of Christ. He has just spoken to them about His suffering, about His death and resurrection. But He reminds them that this is only a temporary state and that glory is to come. And they get to a glimpse. The, the veil is, is open. The, the, sheet, the curtain of the future is lifted just a bit. And they were able to peer into the future. And what do they see but a living Christ and a living people? We are told that Jesus wasn't alone on that mountain with these three disciples, but that Moses and Elijah were there. Now, most likely, the reason it's Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law, he was the person who first led God's people. He was the one who led them out of their captivity and slavery and through the exodus and to the promised land. And Elijah is the representative of the prophets. And your Old Testament could really be divided into two parts. There is the law and the prophets. And the law pointed people to the worship of God and relationship to Him. And the prophets, in their writings, pointed everybody back to the law, which then sought to have relationship to God through Christ. And we see here, in the glory of Christ, a new exodus. Look with me here at what we're told. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. His exodus, that's the the underlining word. It's not a coincidence that Luke uses this word to point that Jesus is about to make all things new. He is about to make a new way for the people of God to have relationship with God eternally. Just as Moses had made a way for God's people to have a relationship with God and and to be in, in His presence, that way failed. That way only pointed to a greater way and the way was Christ Jesus is the the new and better Moses he he is the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy chapter 18 the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers and it is him listen that you shall listen to Jesus here is, is revealing this new way that God's people will, will see the glory of Christ. That's why we began our service with John 1.14. If you want to see the glory of God, look no further than to Jesus. The glory of God revealed. But in the Exodus, the first Exodus, God met with His people in a tent And a cloud overshadowed that tent and that cloud was a symbol of God's visible presence among His people. And what do we find here? But Peter responding at this scene and saying, let's build three tents. Let's build three tabernacles that that, that we can make a permanent place here. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding the things, Peter. He did not understand what He is saying. There is a new tent A new tabernacle. And John 1.18 tells us that Jesus came and dwelt among us. He literally, God, tabernacled among us. That if we want to meet with God, then we meet with God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what this scene is revealing to us. The glory of following Christ. (laughs) Excuse me. And as this scene concludes... We are told of another cloud that begins to descend upon Jesus and his disciples. And a voice came out of the cloud, verse 35, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. It is something glorious, isn't it? That what the disciples witnessed that day, that they kept silent about until the day Given that they would preach and teach, and obviously record this for us, is that the kingdom of Christ is a living kingdom. That Jesus was there with two living beings that were long dead. Moses lived thousands of years before this time. Elijah, hundreds of years before this time. Both of those men had been dead in a grave, rotting away as corpses. But here they stood, alive on that mountain. It is because first comes suffering, then glory. This is the way of the cross. First a cross, then a crown. We see a glimpse of the resurrection even in this passage before us this morning. And the hope that we have. Friend, let me remind you of the suffering of this world is only temporary. It is only momentary. One day, we shall see Him as He is. Though now we look through a glass dimly lit, one day we shall see His face as one man sees another. We shall touch Him and walk with Him and know Him. Don't give up. Don't quit. Endure. I know the sorrows are great. I know the nights seem long. And it doesn't seem that the darkness will ever lift, but we we have a glimpse of your own future, friend. If you are in Christ, this this transfiguration is meant to, to propel you to the end, to encourage you. One day, you too will dwell with God's people forever. A cross, then a crown. Suffering, then glory. But following after Christ does not come without failure. I think that these early disciples masterfully displayed for us And putting this together, Luke wants you to know that following after Christ doesn't come without failure. So often we think that following Jesus means a perpetual, perfect life every year better than the last year, every day better than yesterday. But we all know that is not our experience. But we feel guilty, we beat ourselves up, and we get discouraged. But if we would just open our Bibles and look, these men just experienced the Shekinah glory of God, and what do they do but come off of that mountain and do just like the nation of Israel did when they saw the glory of God? They bicker and fight and whine and complain. Is that not our own experience? God does great things in our life. He redeems us. He saves us. We experience His glory. And, and, we, and then we turn and we attack one another. And we, and we start comparing ourselves to one another. And we lose faith. And this is exactly what we see in these four scenes that follow the Mount of Transfiguration. Transfiguration. And just as Moses descended to a mess, so Jesus descended the Mounts of Transfiguration to a mess. The first mess, we see the failure of faith. The failure of faith. Jesus' disciples, like Aaron and the nation of Israel, were busy while Moses was up on the mountain. But they were faithless. They are trying to heal this poor man's son, but they can't do it. They are struggling to do it. And Jesus responds, notice what He says there in verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? These are almost identical to Moses' words to the nation of Israel post Mount Sinai. O faithless and twisted generation, Jesus here is lamenting the brokenness of God's people, the sinfulness of God's people, and the failure of their faithlessness. It's a reminder that as disciples, there are going to be seasons where we fail to follow after Christ by faith, but that the grace of God is is there and meets us in our failures. Jesus says to them, how long am I to bear with you? Bring your son there. And we are told that he instantaneously heals the boy and all were astonished at the majesty of God. In the midst of our failure, we see even the grace of God present. We see secondly here, following the Mount of Transfiguration, the failure of unbelief. The failure of unbelief. In verses 43-45, through the disciples are dull of hearing and understanding. Jesus again comes to me and he says, "Let these words sink into your ears, you deaf men. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be delivered into the hands of men. But notice, verse 45, they did not understand, and it was concealed from them that they may not perceive it. They were unbelieving. They were doubting. And just as I have pointed out to you so often as a way of encouraging you and lovingly pastoring you, there is a reason why our brother John Bunyan in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, has a scene of Doubting Castle and why Christian is locked away for so long in Doubting Castle because that is the true experience of so many of us. And we feel shame, we feel feel discouraged, and we feel disappointment. But friend, it is not wrong to feel the failure of unbelief. There will be seasons where you will doubt God's power. And it is our responsibility to be like Hopeful and remind you of the key that unlocks Doubting Castle is the faith that you have already in you. And if you would only believe and trust, the failure of unbelief. But we also see here in verses 46 and 48 the failure of pride. Again, the disciples, many of whom have just witnessed the glory of God in Christ, the wonder and power of miracles, and what are they arguing about? What are they discussing? Well, they're discussing what every church committee and Southern Baptist do every week who is the greatest who's the best? I'm the best. No, you're the best. We're told there that while they were going along, an argument arose among them to which of them was the greatest. I mean, you have to just laugh at the way they acted, but how often do we do the same? And what does Jesus do but pull a child in front of them? Now, this isn't what you think it is, so let me straighten it out. When he's pulling this child up in front of them, what he's doing is he's taking societal, the the person in society that was seen as worthless. Children were seen as a nuisance. They were seen as an obstacle in that particular culture. And so, what Jesus is doing is giving them a vivid illustration of that which the world rejects is the very people that God accepts. That the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, that God did not call the powerful and the noble and the esteemed, but the weak and the powerless... The poor and the wretched. You see, the kingdom of God isn't for those who need it, or rather who think they don't need it, but rather for those that recognize their need of it. We see the pride even evident in these disciples. How often are we filled with pride, thinking that the church is only for those that have the appearance that their life is fixed? You know, that appear that things are all together. Friend, there are people all around us in our own community that are broken that don't appear ready for Sunday, but they are needful of the gospel. They need Jesus. Well, lastly, we see the failure of division. We are reported here in verses 49 and 50 that John takes it upon himself to try to stop someone who wasn't in their club. John is discouraged here that there is someone doing ministry apart from the twelve. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. The idea here isn't that he isn't following Christ. He is. But that he's not with us. In other words, he's not in our group. And this party faction, which is so known to Christians and to plague so many churches, was found even in these early disciples. The failure of division. Oh, if they're not, they don't wear our colors, if they don't have our name, they must not be faithful. friend, we must fight against these things. This is no way to teach that doctrine doesn't matter. On Wednesday night, we spent a whole time thinking about core doctrine and how we have this unity among other Christians around doctrine. There are some things that as Christians we disagree about. But that means, that does not mean rather, that we're not Christians. I think J.C. Ryle puts it best. He writes this, in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom. That is a needed reminder. And that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed, the gospel is preached, the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like it. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted, Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and what church he may belong. Peter, or rather Paul, would say it this way. Whether one preaches out of envy or not, doesn't matter, so long as Christ is preached. Brothers and sisters, we must hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But we must not go down the road of some rigid fundamentalism that seeks to divide at every moment. Friend, as Ryle says, we do not have the monopoly on wisdom. We seek to follow Christ as faithfully as we can as a congregation, but we must Fight against a party spirit. Be united around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, this is why I pray often for non-Southern Baptists who preach the same gospel we preach. Friend, what would it say about us if we prayed for revival but it happened down the street and not here? And we complained. What would that say about us if we complained that another church saw revival, and we didn't. Well, it would say that we're really not following Christ, but ourselves. Let us fight these failures. Brothers and sisters, let us resist the temptation to have cheap grace. Grace without a cross. Grace without lordship. Take up your cross, brothers. Brothers. Take up your cross, sisters. First come to the cross, and then glory. This life will be a life of suffering and sorrow, for this Savior's life was a life of suffering and sorrows, and so will yours be. But then will come glory and wonder and everlasting enjoyment. Do not fail to enter the rest as some have done, but endure to the end. Fight the good fight of faith, Finish the race well. Then you will receive the crown of glory. Then you too will see what those disciples saw that day. Unending glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh Father, we long for that day to see Jesus. To see His power displayed in glory and wonder at the bowing of every knee and every tongue. Help us, we pray, to see the cost of our own redemption. The death of Christ for our sin, for our life. Let us see the costliness of following after Christ, not given over to cheap grace. To stand in Long for the glory that is to be revealed. It is for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.